Now let's turn again in our Bibles to the Gospel according to John, where we've been studying these Sunday mornings, uh, and we're in John chapter 10, and you'll find that on page 1076 if you're using the church Bible. John chapter 10, I want to read verse uh, 11 and then from verse 19 to the end. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father, For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him and said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. 
John's gospel, as we've been discovering, focuses basically on answering three questions. Actually, John has given us the answers that we need in the opening section of his gospel. It's a kind of preliminary reader's guide, as though he's saying to us, if if you find it difficult to follow this amazing story, then here are the things for which you should look out. And uh, if we were allowed to scribble on the back wall and we could write the prologue to John's gospel in the middle and have the text of John's gospel all the way around the church, uh, we could get the children to draw lines from virtually every paragraph in John's gospel back to the opening 18 verses. So, John has been preparing his readers to see things that many of the people in the gospel story itself do not see, and some apparently never see. And so, there are three questions he's constantly answering. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus say? And the big question that is our focus in this third study in John chapter 10 this morning, the big question, who is this Jesus who has said these things and He's done these things? And this second half of John chapter 10 is really a almost climactical revelation of who Jesus thinks He is, who others think He is, and of course, John is constantly, as it were, turning around as though he were Rembrandt, painting himself into the portrait and saying, and who do you think Jesus is? And this is where the whole gospel is going. We've seen that again and again. It's going to the climactic point in which doubting Thomas is brought to faith and says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And John tells us at the end of chapter 20 that he's written the whole gospel. This is why he gave the clues at the beginning. He's written the whole gospel so that you and I may be brought to precisely that point of trusting in Jesus as our Lord and our God. And this is why in this section, particularly in verses 14 to 21, Jesus gives the people a revelation of His identity. He had done that in a veiled way by the fact that He had described Himself as the Good Shepherd. And of course, if we, if we could hear this with the mindset of these Jews who listened to Jesus, we ourselves would make an immediate connection between this claim and the great description of God in the Old Testament, right from the book of Genesis, when Jacob wants to bless his grandchildren, he prays that the Lord who has been his shepherd will also be the shepherd of these boys. So, it's not David in Psalm 23, but Jacob in Genesis 45 who speaks about God as the shepherd of Israel. The whole story of the 
the exodus from Egypt is the story of how God called His flock out of Egypt and led them like a shepherd through the wilderness. This is why David says, as he, as he sees that what God has been to all Israel, He has also been to him. He's able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. This, of course, is why they're going to stone him because this is a scarcely veiled claim to identify himself with the one who saved his people in the exodus from Egypt, the one about whom David praised in Psalm 23, the one who is described in so many places in the Old Testament, in this rural economy, as the one who has been the divine shepherd of his people. But then he's even more specific, isn't he? He, he says, you know, uh, I am not only the shepherd, but I am God the Son. Look, for example, at what he says in verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And then in verse 15, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And then you'll notice as he goes on, he changes from the definite article to the possessive pronoun. There is a sense in which, although it was very rare for them to do it, Jewish people might have spoken about God as the Father of Israel. But then Jesus goes on to say, He is my Father. And he explains how this is so. He says in verse 15, it is so because there is a special mutual knowledge that he has with the Father and the Father has with him. I know the Father and the Father knows me. I mean, it's extraordinary in the first place that he would call God Father. Old Testament hardly ever does that. And when it does it, it's not speaking about Father the way Christians refer to God as Father. It's speaking of as the creator of the universe and the creator of Israel. Not speaking of Him as a Father we know in a personal and intimate way. But this is what Jesus says about Him. The Father knows me. And then even more daringly, no one had ever spoken these words in all history before. In all history, no one had said, I know the Father. And if we were to ask, well, what, what was this knowledge? Then John actually has answered our question in the opening verse of, of the gospel, hasn't he? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. If you're interested in Greek, it's pros, ton, theon, which means towards God, looking towards God, face to face with God. You're walking down the street with somebody and you, you stop and you turn around to face one another. This is the preposition that would have been used of intimacy, of closeness, of looking in the face, looking in the eye. It's a, it's a powerful claim to the deepest eternal intimacy with God, knowing God face to face fully. 
It's as though he's saying, uh, you know, if you shake the hand of somebody famous and you don't wash it, you can say to somebody, shake the hand that shook the hand. He's saying, you are looking into the face of one who has looked from all eternity into the face of the eternal Father. But not only this mutual knowledge, there's a mutual love that he goes on to speak about in verses 15 to 18. The Father knows me, but not only does the Father know me, verse 17, the Father loves me. Actually, he hints that he loves the Father, doesn't he? The Father has given me a charge to lay down my life for the sheep and I am obedient to that charge because I love my heavenly Father. But the more amazing statement in a way he makes is this, my Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep. He's looking forward to, he's actually looking forward to the agony of the cross, and we need to bear in mind to the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's saying, even although in that moment I may lose all consciousness of my Father's face being turned towards me, this I know, that in that moment, if I can put it in human terms, my heavenly Father will say, I've never loved you as much as I love you now. That, of course, is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? That the God who condemns us for our sin loves us by condemning the Son He loves for the sin that isn't His. And yet, in that very transaction, some of us old-timers love the hymn, If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. And it's not hard to imagine the heavenly Father, as it were, broken heart at the, at the desertion that is required for our acceptance into the presence of God, as it were, humanly speaking, if I can put it this way, singing through the tears, my Jesus, I love Thee. If ever I loved Thee, my Jesus, tis now. So, this is the most amazing claim to deity, and the fact that it is a claim to deity is made crystal clear in the passage, isn't it? There is a division among the people, and the people are driven, it seems, in this context, as the passage goes on, to one or other conclusion. Either he is a demon, that is, he is evil and bad or deluded, and He will lead us astray, or He must be guilty of blasphemy, because, well, they're not willing to draw the obvious conclusion. And so, after Jesus has revealed His identity, you'll notice in verses 22 through to the end, about verse 30, they make a demand to Jesus that He speak more plainly. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? He couldn't have made it any more plain than this. 
And he very patiently explains to them that he couldn't have made it any more plain to them. But they say, tell us who you really are. Are you the Christ? You're not making it clear to us. Well, that's the cry of the whole world in connection with Christ, isn't it? But you notice what Jesus says. He says, the problem is not my lack of clarity. The problem is that you cannot see. And we've encountered this before, John chapter 3. The great Nicodemus, the great theologian in Israel. Nicodemus says, Jesus, unless you're born from above by God's Spirit, you'll never be able to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says to him, ironically, I can't see that, Jesus. You see what he's saying? He's saying to them, the problem is not in the clarity of the revelation. The problem is in the blindness and deadness of your heart. That's why you can't see. That's why you can't and won't trust. And he spells it out for them. Verses 25 and 26. Don't you see that I'm acting in my Father's name and with His authority? Don't you see that these are God-like things that I'm doing? Don't you remember the prophecies about, about making the lame walk and the blind to see? Don't you understand it's only God that gives that kind of recreated life as He gave us life in the first place, and this is exactly what I've been doing. And then as He speaks about this, He, he gives this most beautiful description of those who have come to trust in Him. And he says, they are my sheep. Your problem is you are not my sheep, and so you don't recognize my voice. But there are those who recognize my voice, and he describes them, describes us if we are Christians, as those the Father has given to me. Actually, interestingly, apart from the use of the word disciple in John's gospel, that's the great way of describing a Christian believer. And it turns out to be Jesus' own favorite way of describing Christian believers. Those my Father has given to me. And you see, this is all of a piece with the revelation of his identity, isn't it? He's face to face with his father. He knows his father. The father knows him. He loves his father. The father loves him. What would, what would such a father do? He says, my son, because of your willingness to die for your sheep, I'm, they're my love gift to you. And you see what Jesus is doing? He is, he is emphasizing that the, the works He does give evidence of who He really is. The works that He does are the kinds of things that God Himself does. And the disciples that He gathers are the very people that God gives to Him. And so He says, kind of astonishingly, really, then, my Father who has given them to me, verse 29, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then, breathtakingly, I and the Father are one. Do 
What does he mean by that? That that must be one of the most unfathomable statements Jesus ever made. I and the Father are one, but at the very least he is saying that I myself am the Son of God in such intimate communion with God the Father that I can say we think one way, we will one way, we do one way. We have one shared goal in view, and that is why I have come into the world. So there's a revelation of his identity, and there's a demand from them that he speak more plainly. And Jesus says to them, it's not possible to speak more plainly. The problem is you are too blind to see. That's what we were learning last Sunday night from Andy Robertson in Ephesians 2. That our fundamental problem lies within ourselves. That we are dead in trespasses and sins. And when we encounter Christ and the gospel, that's the thing that we wrestle most with. It is, it is an appalling shock to discover that the way you thought about the world has been mistaken, that the way you thought about God has been mistaken, that the way you thought about yourself has been mistaken, the way you thought about Christ has been mistaken, and that the reason you've argued with Christians and tried to persuade them they are wrong is, according to Jesus, because you yourself are wrong. The way you've, you've argued with them to say, you are blind, you don't see things clearly, is according to Jesus, because you're blind and you don't think clearly. And you can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to work out where does Jesus fit into our view of the world? And the answer is, Jesus doesn't fit into your view of the world. Your view of the world needs to fit into Jesus. And when that begins to happen, everything begins to become clear. So, there's a revelation of his identity. There's a demand that he speak more clearly And that leads to the climax of this passage in verse 31. There is an accusation against Jesus of blasphemy. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which one are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because... Now, just let your mind hang on these words for blasphemy because you, a man, make yourself to be God. Now, if you read and read and reread and reread through John's gospel, uh, you would begin to get a feeling for John's personality, for the things he likes, the way he likes to put things, and also for the fact like some of us. Some of you like puns, don't you? So, there are often puns when you speak to other people. John loved irony. He loved to say to us, do you see that? Now, do you really see that? Do you listen to what he's saying? Do you really hear what he's saying? What's he saying? 
we're going to stone you for blasphemy because you're a man and you're making yourself God. And we know, because we have the secret of John's gospel right from the very first word, that they couldn't have got it more wrong. The truth is, he's not a man who's making himself God. The wonder of the situation is that he's God who's become man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. And you see, this is, this is why the non-Christian cannot fit Jesus into his system or her system. Because we're always bound to be asking the question, where does Jesus fit into the way I view things? How can a man be God? And the truth of the gospel is, don't you understand, mere man, mere woman, that you're looking through the wrong end of the telescope? Don't you see what you've done? And this is the irony of it. They accuse him of blasphemy, and they are the ones who are committing blasphemy because they have made themselves the center of their world. And that's the very essence of blasphemy. When I dethrone him and make myself the center of the world so that I see everything from a center in myself and how it fits into me and how he fits into my worldview. And Jesus is teaching them this, isn't he? What's, what's astonishing, really? Remember, late, earlier on in the passage, he'd said, no one takes my life from me. He's got such confidence in this that there they're standing with bricks. Well, not bricks, but stones in their hands. I mean, it says it in the passage. They've got stones in their hand, ready to stone him. See what he does? He calmly opens a theological conversation with them. He says, you're fussing about me claiming to be the Son of God, but it says in your Hebrew Bible, you are God's. Is, is this a West of Scotland thing? You know, you go up to somebody, you go, get out of that, can't, can you? And in a way, he's doing that, isn't he? They're not very sure what that passage in the Old Testament means. If you read the New Testament scholars, they can't agree what that passage means. Why should you trust me? I think what it means is this, that there were people in Israel who ruled over Israel as God rules over the cosmos, and so they were described as the gods of Israel. Just as, as David was saying earlier on to the children, that we are made as the image of God, like God, because He has given us the privilege of ruling over a tiny part of the cosmos the way He rules over the whole cosmos. And Jesus, it's as though Jesus is saying to them, look, if you call gods those who are your leaders and your judges because they have all authority over the nation. Why? Why are you complaining when the one the Father sends into the world, His own dear Son, appears before you and demonstrates His divine power? Why should you complain and criticize when I say, I am the Son 
of God. It's a very, you know, mark those words, friends, because those words tell us that Jesus Himself claimed to be the Son of God. And they also demonstrate to us that it was those who wanted to destroy Him who were the real blasphemers. He was not God making Himself man, they thought, but man making Himself God. He was the blasphemer, they thought, not themselves, when the very reverse was the truth. It's, it's uh, you know, Jesus sometimes does this, doesn't he? He, he? he pulls the rug from underneath people's feet, and then they become desperate, and these people become desperate with Jesus because Jesus has shown them to be the blasphemers because He is indeed the Son of God. Don't you see, he says, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? You know, he uses the second shortest word in the English vocabulary, in. And we all know what in means. Until somebody says to us, what does in mean here? I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Well, surely speaking about that uh, relationship that's described in John 1, that he's described here of, of such intimacy that they are, they are mutually consumed with devotion to one another. Some of our younger men, alas, recently have got into golf, and I've noticed some of them becoming almost obsessive. You know, they think about it. They try and work it out. They're going to conquer it. Or you're into something different. That's, that's something of the flavor of in. This, this utter devotion between the Father and the Son that Jesus says is expressed in His ministry. They've seen an overflow of their mutual love for one another, their mutual knowledge of one another in the ministry that Jesus has had. And so he says to them very tellingly, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Isn't that a strange thing to say? Even if you don't believe what I'm saying, believe what I'm doing. Now, why do you think he says that? It's not because believing in him isn't important. I think it's for this reason. You, you may have become a Christian like this. I think I became a Christian partly in this way, that I might argue with those who told me they'd come to faith in Christ. But when I saw their lives, there was something in my arguments that were dented. Uh, you hear that happen frequently. I can't stand what these Christians believe. I hate what they say. So countercultural, and and I'm I'm angry with it. Uh, but the one thing you can't actually argue with is the amazing consistency for all our warts and all between who Jesus is and what Jesus does in the lives of Christian people. So many people are brought to Christ that way. 
because it's as though Jesus is gracious and he, he stoops down and says, I know how blind you are. I know that you can't taste the joys of the kingdom of God, but just, just get a little taste of what it's like to be among Christian people and sense something of the heavenliness and the rightness and, and the sense of this is, there's something about here that this is how life should, should be. Something about the little children being able to be with us and older people taking an interest in them and people deferring to one another, people loving one another, have affection for one another, seeking one another's good. I don't like this gospel, but where on earth did this come from? Until eventually you are convinced it came from this gospel, it came from Jesus Christ. And I've been looking at the whole thing through the wrong end of the telescope. And here he is. This is, this is us finished for the moment anyway with John chapter 10. In verse 10, he's offering to give life to us. In verse 11, he's dying on the cross in our place. In verse 27, he's calling us to himself and we're beginning to hear his voice. And in verses 28 to 30, he says, and I'll never let you go. You're afraid of what it will mean to follow me, what it will cost you to be mine. I will never let you go. You are safe with me. And it's sad that it was only when he went somewhere else that we are told that he went away across the Jordan, and there many believed in him. Dear friend, don't let Jesus go on to somebody else or somewhere else without you trusting in Him and knowing that everything He says is true, that He's able to take you into the very presence of the Father. He's able to take you, as it were, as a, as a frightened little child, because if you're not a Christian, deep down you are terrified of God. You've got to be. You're terrified of God. You say He's a God of love, but you don't believe a word of it. Because you don't live as though it's true. You don't believe a word of that. And He takes us by the hand and He says, just get a glimpse of this. And so later on in His first letter, John will say, this is the marvel of it. The Father knows the Son. The Son knows the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Wouldn't you want to be part of that? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father,